0: Like, Mm -hmm. I'll take yes, I'll take no. I don't care. No's great. I love no no means no more work to do. You know, you're (laughs) gone. Bye-bye. You know, nice meeting you. Keep you on my mailing list. I'll put you in my newsletter, right? (laughs) Yes is fantastic. Yes is pop the champagne. That's awesome. It's those stinking maybes, man.
1: If you're an active real estate investor and you're looking to do larger deals, you're in the right place. We are gonna go and take the conceptual type of stuff that you listen to from other real estate podcasts and bring it down to the tactical, the nitty gritty, the actual actionable types of things that other real estate investors that went big did to grow their own real estate empire. You're listening to the Go Big Live podcast. I'm your host, Matt Druin. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Go Big Live podcast. I am your host, Matt Druin. I have a amazing guest today that I'm actually fanboying over right now. It's Mr. Matt Faircloth. I've been following him for many years. Just a little bit about Matt. He is founder and CEO of DeRosa Group, renowned Bigger Pockets contributor. And to top it all off, he is a Amazon bestseller. Actually, some people there in the live Q and A today are actually raving fans of his book, "Raising Private Capital: How to Build Your Real Estate Empire with Other People's Money." A full-time investor since 2005, Matt has success- successfully completed projects ranging from fix and flips and single-family to office buildings and apartment communities. With a portfolio boasting 150 million in assets under management and over 1,800 units, Matt is a true expert in his field with a passion for education and helping others find success. Welcome, Matt. <laughs>
0: Welcome and thank you, Matt, for that long introduction. And that's and that's uh, really flattering. Thank you. I also want to just tell people that for those that have already read my book, Raising Private Capital, it's got a new cover now, and it is has a new. It's a revised edition. I wrote a lot more content for it, so we just released this new version of Raising Private Capital with a new forward written by Pace Morby, the Juggernaut, the Machine, the Tornado of Real Estate. Pace Morby wrote wrote the new forward for that book. So pretty cool, huh? Yeah, absolutely,
1: man. So I like to start the show with: You were born, and now you're here. What happened in between?
0: <laughs> A lot of stuff. Now I was I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. I went to college at Virginia Tech because people said that you're good at math and engineering, so you should be an engineer. And so I trusted adults, and I did that. And then I got be got my degree in engineering, and I said, "Whoa." I don't want to be an engineer because it's like a, on a desk, sitting in a little cubicle all day working in a factory. So I got a job outside of engineering a bit in technical sales. So I was a salesman for seven years selling industrial machinery called air compressors. Mm-hmm. I sold those for seven years, traveled all around the country, lived in North Carolina, lived in Philly. And when I was living in Philly met a lovely young Elizabeth Randazzi, Mm Paisano Elizabeth Randazzi, who put (laughs) Rich Dad Poor Dad in my hand and got me to read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And so it was really changed my mindset, changed my way that I viewed money and how it works and what money really is and what assets are and, you know, trading hours for dollars versus building assets and completely changed my life. And so I started playing the cashflow board game. And very soon after that, realized that there was more in me. Uh, and so I quit my job. In, in that time frame too, after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, I bought a single family home and lived in a bedroom, rented out the, the other two bedrooms to two knucklehead drinking friends of mine. And those two knucklehead drinking friends of mine were paying me $500 a month. My mortgage was 940. And so they each were paying me 500. So I was making 60 bucks a month and living there for free. And that opened up my possibilities to what was available. That got me to quit my job. We, we, uh, me and now Liz Faircloth of 18 years of marriage, uh, decided to live this crazy thing that couples don't know how to do anymore, which is called living below your means. And so we lived way below what our means were, and we were able to live on just one salary. And that enabled me to quit. We lived on her salary where I built our company, the Derosa Group. Fun fact, Derosa is her mother's maiden name, and that's how that's where the name Derosa comes from. So now Derosa is a residential landlording company in active in four states. Liz and I are big about like the why you do what you do, we want to make want to leave an impact in the world and want to help other people. And so the context for Derosa is to transform lives through real estate. We want to we see real estate investing as a means to make a good impact on the world that you can help people reach their financial goals while you give your tenants a better quality of life. Right, and so we merge those two into transforming lives to real estate. That's why we do what we do, and we are over a couple of thousand units in Kentucky, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Jersey now.
1: The end. Sweet, sweet. So, like we were talking about before the show, you know, I've heard your inspirational story about how you bought, you know, your first, you know, property with like a thirty thousand dollar loan and that sort of thing. That's from Let's, her dad.
0: Yeah, Salvatore <laughs> Randazzi loaned me thirty thousand dollars. He probably would have broken my legs had I not given it back to him. So I gave it back. Yeah. So
1: let's talk about you know our you know our target audience here with this show is you know investors that have a few properties under their belt. They're intimidated as hell about raising capital. So let's talk about your first like like big deal. Kind of like where it puts you on the map with as mm. a you know. More of a commercial operator and that sort of thing, and dive yeah. in, dive into that. So, tell me about like where the seminal moment was and shift when it came to switching to bigger type of stuff.
0: Sure. We had raised some money up and this was not our first raise of other people's money, right? But, and we got started in New Jersey, built out, you know, around 100 units in New Jersey, small scattered site stuff. And we then expanded across the bridge into Philly. And so that, that's, that that was our portfolio there, had around 200 units and everything like that all in, including our Philly stuff. And we wanted to keep expanding and we were managing it all ourselves. With like, you know, had a couple like maintenance techs and you know, a leasing agent that worked for me under my umbrella and all. And then we found a 49-unit single site out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it was a converted factory, like it used to be a shoe factory, and then somebody else converted it into an apartment building. And she's one of those old like lost out conversions with like the spiral staircases and the ginormous <laughs> windows and everything like that. It's a really cool space, right? So We figured out how to make that deal, put the deal under contract. And I immediately was like, oh, we need to start up DeRosa Group Management here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which was every minute to two hours away from my office, right? Mm -hmm. So my lovely wife and and a muse in many ways in my life just was a little bird on my shoulder and said, you know, honey, you probably could uh, manage this yourself, but why don't you try third-party management for now? And if it does you can always fire that manager and manage it yourself later, right? Yeah. And I said, you know what? You're right. Let's do that. Let's hire a management company, see what they do. And that deal, so we agreed to do that. That deal uh, caused me to have to raise a million dollars, which is my first... Million dollar raise. It took me a while. I had to get a few extensions on closing, but we were able to pull it across. And this is like pre Bigger Pockets, you know, mm-hmm. so before any notoriety, you know. And I'm just going through my cell phone, like, "Hey man, you got any money?" <laughs> right? Like, just we put together a million bucks by just reaching out to our network and doing doing a lot of cold calling and stuff. But we got to the table and we closed. Mm-hmm. And in that epiphany, Matt, what I got was. I should not be running a property management company. And the reason why a wife told me, hey, you might not want to do this, you might want to hand it off, is because she saw that 80% of my time was going into a thing that would that had the potential to make me 20% of my money, right? Mm-hmm. That you really should be focusing that on a thing that you make a lot of money on, which is raising money. And so I that enabled me to take my focus off of off of the management side of the business and just focus on ops and capital raising. Mm -hmm. In that deal, put us at about 250-ish doors. In the next three years, we added another thousand units to our portfolio because I was able to focus on raising money, finding deals, and then finding phenomenal third-party management companies to run them for us. And we expanded our team that could help me with a few of those other things too. So now all I really do for our company is raise money. And if somebody else who manages the day-to-day, I have somebody else who finds the deals, and I have somebody else who underwrites those deals for us. We kind of mm-hmm. broke the job responsibilities down into four quadrants. And that 49-unit deal was the beginning of that breakup of those different, to, to those different sectors of a company.
1: Yeah. So let's back up a little bit on that 49, it's 49 units, right?
0: Yep. So
1: how did you find the
0: deal? Uh, it's you, you'll, you'll won't be impressed broker <laughs> the, the same the broker same broker that sold me the Philly deal I had an 18 unit in Philly that I had to bang my head on his door to get him to, take, to get him to take me seriously and I finally convinced him to, to let me make a bid on the deal we bought the Philly deal he realized that I'm okay and that I'm a good buyer and so we he uh, gave us a look at the 49 unit we bid the 49 unit and somebody else came in and bid a bit of higher number, they fell out of contract and then we were the next in line. And so we got the deal at a significant discount. I had to sign a piece of paper, Matt, that said I wasn't related to the owner because the bank said, wait a minute, you're getting, this is too good of a deal based on what it's, it's selling for way less than what it's appraised for. I need to make sure that this owner's not like your uncle or something like that. You should do you a favor.
1: Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, let's back up even further. Tell me about the head banging process with the with the broker. Because I really want to dive into sure how to effectively build relationships with brokers, because mm-hmm. this deal probably wouldn't have happened if you didn't bang your head against the wall in the first deal.
0: To buy the 18 unit. That broker sold me the 18 unit, a 49 unit, and then a 198 unit after that. So he believed me after a while, right? But the way to get broker to pay attention to you is to not call them just one time, right? A lot of people will call a broker up and say, hey, I'm new to the multifamily world. I've never done any deals ever and just getting going and you know, read a book on real estate investing and now I really want to get into the game. And so can you send me all your multifamily deals? And oh, by the way, I want to do seller financing because I don't have any money, right? it's You got to fake it till you make it a little bit. And you also need to consistently check in with the broker. Those are the two things. We can unpack those in a second, but the last thing you also have to do is if you want the broker to take you seriously, you need to take the broker seriously. And so if they send you some overpriced piece of garbage, underwrite it, go look at it, take it seriously. Guess what? That broker is feeding their family off of that deal. And until you realize that, yeah, you're feeding your family off deals that you do, it's also their livelihood to sell real estate opportunities and they know it's overpriced. So don't be going in there and, nope, that's overpriced. I, I, I want an off the market deal, you know, whatever. No, go look at it. Go take it seriously. Underwrite it. Put your best foot forward. Tell them why you think it's worth a certain number. You might not get it on first round, but a lot of deals that I've gotten came back around. So if you take the broker seriously, they'll take you seriously.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And on the keeping top of mind there, I mean, I just had a story recently where there was this property, it was a triple net lease retail deal with a national, Mm. you know, had national retail tenant type stuff. It was a fantastic deal if we could have a lease extension as a contingency in the deal. All right. So we made an offer, it was off market. There was another there's another competing party that made an offer that was just cleaner than ours because there was two years left in the triple net lease with the bigger tenant. And so this broker brought to us And we found out we didn't prevail. And then I find out that it fell out of contract. And the only reason I found out about that is because it appeared on LoopNet. And I was so mad, but I was like, and I was mad. Like first I had this visceral reaction that was mad at the broker. And then I was like, you know what? I hadn't talked to this guy in six months. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, a you know, and a lot of these, you know, a lot of these brokers don't have like a, you know, a complicated CRM system that will like trigger like an automatic text message to you
0: because you made an offer on it if a deal sure. falls apart, right? Yeah, so- wouldn't that be great if they'd text you to say, oh, hey, Salesforce text you to say, oh, hey, wait a minute, it fell out of contract. But like they get, you know, in this day and age, Matt, they're getting like a call an hour from a new investor, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're not top of mind, they can they'll be like, Matt, who? You know, oh, yeah, you did bid that deal. Cause they're like on deal number 74 when that one fell out of contract. If that's deal number one. Right. So they've already long forgotten. The only way you stay in front of a broker is by constantly reaching out. Hey, how's it going? What's it? you got to be their friend in some ways. I mean, that's, I'm like buddy with most of my brokers because they need to look at me that way. So, and they need to know I can close they need to know I'm funded, and they need to know that, that I'm going to take their deals seriously no matter what it is. And regularly check in. And you got to be the bell of the ball regularly to kind of check in. <laughs> and, hey, how's it like, going? Oh, I'm over here. Just seeing, so you how I'm over here. It Just said, pop an email. Hey, anything going on? Anything new? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just make yourself a note every week or two weeks to send a quick line to your broker. If you're local to them, take them out for coffee every month, something like that, check in. You know, They, they wouldn't mind. They want serious buyers. Totally agree. Great yeah. advice. So let's bring a little bit of
1: step forward here. So uh, fell to contract. The deal is now in your court, right? What happens from there specifically?
0: <laughs> so the this is why I had to sign a piece of paper that said I wasn't the guy's uncle or his uh, nephew, right? They were asking three point nine. Okay, uh, winner to contract at three point nine. We offered three three five. Mm-hmm. Okay and the agent's like, no, no way he's going to take it. And I stayed in touch with him, you know, like, hey, how's it going? And then a lot of the units are subgrade, meaning like they're below, like if you're standing mm. in the unit, you can see the earth at about eye level, you know? Yeah. And that, and so the owner, the buyer did not like that they were subgrade, even though there's drainage, they've never flooded ever and they there however many years, but uh, the, mm. the buyer didn't like that. Okay, fine. We were willing to deal with it, but the, it, it turns out that the current the, the seller's mortgage was coming due, and he had not told his broker that, mm. right? And so when that buyer fell out, he's like, "Oh man, what do we do? We got to refinance. I got to get out of this thing." And the broker said, "Well, all I got is this guy, my buddy Matt, out of out of New Jersey, and he's already bought for me." I know he's already got some of the equity lined up. I know he can handle this deal. It's just that he's at 335 and I know you don't want to do it for that. And the, the seller cut him off and says, he's at 335. Let me talk to my partner. I'll call you right back. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we got it at 335. I went out there and sat, the property had a couple of gazebos. I sat down at the gazebo <laughs> and me and the seller sat at a gazebo and talked about the deal. And then I took him out for a beer and me and the seller over a beer closed the deal. You know, I think I came up a little bit and he agreed to a small concession on something else and we're able to put it together. So the second lesson there, Matt, is you never know if you're going to get a deal if you never make a bid. And so I recommend to your listeners that even if it's an embarrassing offer, put it in writing, because especially in this day and age where things might correct a little bit, Your second offer that you put in writing is way better than the offer that you were, the number you were thinking that you never said, because it's not their whisper price, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So next step we're talking about, what was the total capital stack? We're talking about purchase price. And then what was your debt, you know, debt and equity mix? And what was the, what was
0: the structure like? You're asking me to think back a little bit, Matt, this was like seven or eight years ago, brother, but I got you (laughs) 2.5, 2.6 in debt. 335 was the buy price. This was back before deals became crazy debt yield restricted and stuff like that. We were borrowing at 3.7, I think was our interest rate. Mm-hmm. No interest only, just fully amortized 30 year 30 year amortized to amortized debt, five year fixed, raised a mill which gave us a 1% acquisition fee, a 50k in startup cash, and then some other closing costs and stuff like that. So the the million dollars, was this the most amount of money you, had to, you ever had to By raise? By far. Just double what I'd ever raised before. I'd raised 500K before and that was a grind. So we raised we raised a million for this one and we had to bring in two capital partners. I'd actually just joined an organization called GoBundance at the time. And one of my buddies was in GoBundance and he was able to reach into abundance and get me a few investors from there. And I joined as a member as well during the, while we were looking at the deal. So that helped in that and gave me some cred. And so I was able to meet some of these guys face-to-face. And these are all local Philly guys that lived in the, they knew where Lancaster was and all that. So they were able to get in. My local network, my, my mama wrote a check and got into the deal. Really grateful. She did, and that's and a lot of my prior investors. We this was this deal we call all our we number all of our deals, right? This was DeRosa Capital seven, which means that's just not my lucky number. There was a DeRosa Capital one through six, mm-hmm. so a lot of the investors in DC one through six got into DC seven as well. So, but it's still a grind uh, to put together a million bucks in, in equity. So, what was the grindy part? Okay. The hardest part of capital raising is it's two things. It's number one, getting eyeballs on the deal, right? getting people to look at it. And if you got a good mailing list you get, and you know how to do the webinar game and you know how to do the follow-up game and that kind of thing, then that diminishes a bit. But in the beginning, getting people to even look at your opportunity is a, is a challenge. The second thing that's the biggest grind and in anything in, in, in raising capital and in selling in general is getting people from a maybe to a yes. Like Mm -hmm. I'll I'll take yes. I'll take no. I don't care. No's great. I love no no means no more work to do. You know, you're gone. (laughs) Bye-bye. You know, nice meeting you. Keep you on my mailing list. I'll put you in my newsletter, right? (laughs) Yes is fantastic. Yes is pop the champagne. That's awesome. It's those stinking maybes, Matt. And then they forget about the thing. And then they, you know, well, let me think about it. Let me talk to my wife. And, you know, is this going to this or this, you know, they want to ask more questions. So the pro, that was the grind about it, was getting the maybes to either be a yeah you know, are you a yes or a no in that? And so you end up having to overraise a bit or get people beyond the soft commits. Like we're in the middle of a raise right now. We'll probably lose around 500K in people that soft committed said, yes, I will invest in your deal. Mm-hmm. wait to change my mind. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or all of a sudden they realize they have to send their kid to college next month or something like that, that they can't give us the money. So those th- that's probably the biggest grind, Matt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The maybe is definitely with, yeah, maybe definitely is uh, oxymoron, but the- Yeah,
0: I'd certainly maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me think about that, about, about yes, about maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that drives me insane is to send me something over Maybe send me something over. So you send you know, the deck over to them and then you have to keep checking in on, oh, did you take a look at it? Did you? Because if you would have told me no, but send something over anyways, like it probably yeah. would have been less motivated to reach out to you. Because I understand like, you know, educate yourself. Yeah. But- that's definitely the the difficult part there. So in, in terms of newer investors, that were maybe you were adding to your network or adding into this deal that you'd never had done a deal with before. You know, where do those relationships come from outside of, maybe outside or even inside of go, the guys that came in from
0: a go go bonus, bonus? Yeah, well, the, some of their the existing investors... Go abundance and then for this deal, this particular deal, existing investors go abundance and then new folks that that had joined our mailing list and, and so we weren't sure it 's kind of like a shotgun approach kind of thing like i don 't know mm-hmm. if these folks are going to get it or not we'll find out because we anybody listening you, first of all we all get, we all need to have a website right, and so on your website you can't guys, listen, SEC is not going to let you be putting on your website like, hey, I'll pay you an 18% IRR rate of return. Just give me your email address. Nope, that's called a solicitation. You can't do that on your website, right? But you can put out there, hey, if you want to hear good stuff that we're up to, Join our mailing list. And so it got to the point where we were getting good, you know, traction on our mailing list because we put ourselves out there, social media, YouTube, and eventually, you know, bigger pockets writing articles for them or appearing on podcasts such as this one. And whatever you guys do, have a website that there is a funnel. And then mm-hmm. you produce a monthly newsletter. And so we had people signing up you know, dozen a week or dozen a month or whatever it is. And so people that had joined our newsletter were aware of what we were up to. And so when we had a deal, we blasted it out to the newsletter list, which at the time was maybe a couple hundred people. And mm-hmm. so some new people that had heard of us, friend of, one person on a newsletter list that invested in the deal was the brother of one of our current investors. Just mm-hmm. so so wanted to just, hey, my brother seems happy. I'll just start tracking you guys. And we had a deal and the guy books a call with me on Calendly. And I'm like, your name sounds familiar. So that's how you end up putting it out there. So you got to have at least a way for people to easily follow you, so that when you have something, they know about it. You know, make it easy for them. Yeah. No, that's great advice. So Matt, yeah. we're we have like two, oh one
1: minute left of our no. record of a recorded show. Oh no. So so tell the audience what this deal did for you and your life.
0: I I make a good amount of passive income off of it. It, it's been a great cash cow. It's been a great vehicle for, for us. I'm very grateful for it. It's something I can point to as a large-ish syndication that we've done. And so when people ask about it, I can point to it. We've also refinanced it now. And so we've returned a lot of investor capital and some investors have gotten bought out of the deal by me. So I've required more and more ownership of that property. So it is something I'm very proud of. It's something I'm very grateful for. And it's a testament to, you know, buy real estate and wait kind of thing because the rents have gone up over time. I got in and rents were 825. Rents are now 1050 on Mm -hmm. the same units because I've owned it for like seven or eight years. And and that's what just changes over time. So that deal's just been a great testament across the board. And it's something I'm very grateful for. It's it's my air quote favorite, you know, we love all of our children the same, but it's my really favorite property. So
1: Excellent. Well, Matt, we have our live uh, studio audience uh, patiently waiting. And so we got to cut the the show now and head over there. So if you're listening to this now and you want to get in on live Q&A with absolute real estate titans like Matt Faircloth, Gino Barbaro, Chris Seveny, Reed Goosens, Brian Burke, Stephen Libman, the list goes on and on. Make sure to join the Facebook group that we formed called the Go Big Live Real Estate Investors Facebook group, and you can get in on live QA with Matt, with guys like Matt Faircloth. So thanks a lot, Matt, for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: You got to say Reed Goosen's name with an Australian accent. Goose Goosen, you know, <laughs> his lovely accent, his chiseled features, that guy, you know, yeah, he's a personal friend, so I can make fun of him, but yeah. yeah. All right. Well, sounds good. Signing off.